Welcome to the Self-Evident and Forgotten Podcast, a show with conversations on the truths of liberty and odd opinions. We're your hosts, Stanton, Christy, and Cody. As always, the opinions we express are ours and ours alone, and they don't necessarily reflect those of our employers or any other organization we may belong to. Wherever you are, and however you're listening and whatever you're doing, thanks for tuning in. Now relax and enjoy the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Self-Evident and Forgotten. We're your hosts, Stanton, Christy, and Cody. The 2020 election is over. State governments are certifying tallies, and the Electoral College will soon meet to cast the official votes. We do plan to have an episode discussing the results, the shenanigans that happened afterward, and the new administration, and so on. Today, however, we'd like to talk about something in education, media, and the general culture that we think is threatening the ideas that support the liberty we all enjoy. And it's called historians. But first, the random question of the episode. Christy and Cody, this is our first of hopefully many Thanksgiving episodes. Tell me, what is your least favorite dish at Thanksgiving? Oh, man. That's hard. I like everything except cranberry sauce. I have to yeah. say, I'm not a big fan of that. That's yeah. fair. Yo, same. Honestly, I'm gonna cop out and just copy you, but 100. <laughs> percent I don't. I don't. I don't get it. I just don't understand it at all. I don't <laughs> think I've ever actually like given it a fair shot. So I can't say I hate it. I've never liked green bean casserole ever. Oh, I know. So I, I just, like me some green bean casserole. I, I don't like green beans. I just I, they're, they're too stringy and just nyan, nyan, nyan. <laughs> the most green I eat are asparagus and broccoli. Anything after that, if it's not brown and meat, I usually probably don't even touch it. <laughs> Maybe the other one, just to be different, that I don't I don't like like normal sweet potatoes. Like when people do it and they do like the marshmallow style ones, I feel mm-hmm. like those are so overdone. Yeah, sweet sweet potatoes. No, I don't. We don't do a whole lot of sweet potatoes at our Thanksgiving. We just we just get just pounds and pounds and pounds of regular potatoes and just mash the hell out of them. <laughs> and no, we're here for we we boys. We love just eating that stuff. This is, I think we're gonna make the same amount of sma- uh, mashed potatoes this year, but there's only gonna be like my family and my grandparents, and so like it's that it. Like so, more for us, more leftovers that we can take home. I am cooking a 17 pound turkey for four people, Uh, which I have been informed is a lot of turkey for four people. You've been eating (laughs) cold turkey sandwiches and mayo for like the next two weeks. I love leftover turkey. I'm doing it on the smoker. I'm totally happy with it. I suppose the real question we should ask, white or dark meat for you guys? White. I'm a dark meat guy. Ah, there's the, there it is. See, I go back and forth. I love, you know, white meat's so much easier, but Dark meat's got some nice flavor in it. <laughs> okay. You guys are like the dark side. So. <laughs> I like Star uh, Wars, so hey, I'll, I'll take the other side. Join the, join the Empire. We're, 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 here yeah. for, we're here for dark meat and dark powers. <laughs> Speaking of dark powers. <laughs> Speaking of dark powers. That's a great transition. Isn't it? I thought that was pretty clever. I thought I did all right. I like it. Yeah, you did. 
Today's problem that I think we want to discuss, now it is a problem, uh, is typically referred to as historical revisionism. And we're going to avoid calling it revisionist history because of the very popular podcast of the same name. So we'll go with historical revisionism. Now, lots of, po- uh, lots of folks in the uh, conservative and libertarian circles, they like to throw this word around, revisionism. Uh, as, as, as some liberal campaign against freedom. And, you know, I don't know if we here disagree with that, but I think it's important that if we're going to talk about historical revisionism, we need to really define what we're talking about. In my opinion, generally speaking, revisionism is relatively simple and not exactly threatening. Essentially, it challenges the orthodox traditional interpretation of historical events. And then it replaces it with a new method of interpreting history. Uh, now, those methods can be relatively benign, right? No, if we get more evidence, more data, we discover new texts or something, you know, that forces us to reconsider what we knew. And that's, that's fine, right? That's just how history and studies work. Other times, these rejections of the orthodox can be quite radical. And they are deliberately trying to undermine traditional views so that they can put in a new ideological lens that may or may not be more accurate. Um, Most common that we hear about is, no, the Marxist interpretation of history, the end of history. You know, there are some side benefits of having Marxists in the world because it helps us understand history in a new light. But relatively speaking, Marxism is is, is that kind of lens that is ideological rather than evidence-motivated. But we're going to explore why we think revisionism has some dangers. Cody's got some interesting things to talk about in terms of ancient Rome, and Chris is going to talk about uh, our favorite topic in, in the libertarian circles. But let me just say this out front. All history must be interpreted. We here in the present, we, we can't know all that happened in the past. What we know of yesterday is what has survived to today. We don't have a neat little list of all the events that happened, like some uh, uh, recording of, of, of the meeting minutes, okay? Documents, photographs, art, sculptures, people, those that survive are what are used to tell the story, okay? And necessarily then the study of history requires a, con- a couple of concessions. First, our knowledge is limited, okay? As with everything, our knowledge of the past is limited. So we're working with what we've got. Second, survivorship bias is the norm of history. Whatever has gotten to this point is what we know, okay? Um, That can sometimes lead to what people call um, history of the victors. The victors get to tell the story, and that's not quite accurate because history isn't told by the victors. History is told by historians, and historians have their own personal biases and their own personal thoughts. Okay, so while the story might be about the victors, it is written by humans, historians, petty, fallible, and imperfect themselves. So the study of history then requires that we do all that we can to continue to find more documentation, to find more evidence, try to include those voices that were not initially heard or incorporated before, to, to do our best to create a community of historians that helps us ease our biases and find a a more objective, if not a perfectly objective, understanding of what we know. Now, 
is that right? Am I, am I speaking nonsense, you guys? I, I like, no, I like to think that I'm on track. I don't think I've said anything too controversial, no, unless you're a Marxist, in which case, I don't know why you're listening to us. <laughs> but welcome. We, we are happy to have you. We, we appreciate all voices. What, have, have, I missed, have I missed anything? Have I left anything out in the ideas of historical revisionism? No, I, I think you're right. I, the only thing that I might qualify is that I, I know that we've, we commonly refer to, or we always talk about, you know, history being, being written by the victors or the historians that are following the victors. Um, I don't think that's always true in some contexts. I mean, we have stories in various conflicts and information and from various wars where we're absolutely have information from the non victors. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I mean, the further you go back in history, the more true that is just because recorded history was so, or the methods of recording history were so, um, fallible, destructible, destroyable, spotty, patchy, yeah. spotty wh whatever you want to call it. So, you know, you have, Roman history from Romans and Greeks and, and later reading contemporaneous writings. So you might have history about like the Romans when they lose or Romans that lose, but it's still from kind of a Roman or a Greek perspective, it's a little different, but you know, by the time you get into to more modern history, I mean, it's not like we don't know what was happening in Nazi Germany. I mean, we, right. we, we know exactly what was going on with the losers on that side. <laughs> and there were some of the best documenters of what they did of any mm -hmm. group in modern history. So, no, that's definitely true. And I think one of my biggest problems is just, I love history, but so many people who are historians don't admit their own biases. And I guess I'm just big on you can have your preference, you can have your opinion, you can have your bias, but let's be honest about it and not claim that your one interpretation of history is the only correct interpretation of history. Like I think as an attorney, like Cody, you and I were used to like, sure, we think our ideas are the best, but we realize it's not the only idea out there. And like attorneys get made fun of for putting things out there as like, this is the one way to do it because everyone knows it's not and that everyone has their own preference and bias and arguments, but that's really true in my view of any field, whether you're talking about history, science, um, people in those fields have biases too. And the thing about, you know, history, it's, it is a story, right? It's gotta be told, right? Uh, um, one of my people was just saying, history is just story with HI in front of it, right? That's all history is. And the thing about, it took me much longer to get than I'm. It, dude, it should probably admit. Too. It's a Tuesday before before Thanksgiving break. I'm 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 right there with you. It's like high story. I don't get it. <laughs> but and you know, it, it's good to have people with different biases in history challenge one another. That's it's it, it functions a little bit like 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 empirical science, right? You need people to challenge things, to relook at to relook at events, to relook at interpretations and say, what can we conclude or what should be concluded? And none of us here are, are going to argue that history unfolds, right? It, it unfolds and it develops, right? And certain lenses throughout time get dirty and they need to be cleaned off or they need to be discarded altogether. But I think what we're here to talk about, because we are all lovers of liberty, and you, our listeners, are too, we are going to explore how certain lenses are simply blind, 
that there's no other way to say it, that they're just bad lenses, that there is, at least to put it how I would understand it, they destroy something that is working that was more correct and they're replacing it with something that is not as correct. Because whether or not one lens is right and one lens is wrong, I don't think that's true. But there are better ways to interpret history and there are worse ways to interpret history. And I, I want to talk about the ways that are worse in terms of protecting or damaging liberty. So, Cody, would you do me <laughs> and us the favor of talking about Cato here? I will. But before we get there, I actually want to ask you a question because I think that you have a really interesting perspective here that we're kind of glossing over. I mean, you, you're a teacher. You, mm. you have to teach history. You teach government. You teach uh, economics. Am I missing anything? No, uh, primarily government economics, but I'll, I dabble in history. So you are in charge of relaying the story. So I, I know that there's this bias uh, oftentimes that we talk about in those people that are, you know, the primary sources even, and then especially the secondary sources. But uh, in a sense, you're kind of a, a tertiary, tertiary source? <laughs> source? It, it depends. I do my best to use primary sources as often as possible, right? And sometimes, you know, you can only fit so many things into a school year. So what you, this is the problem with, with historical education, what you choose to teach, it matters just as much as the thing you're teaching, right? Um, so I'm curious, how do you, um, how do you go about that prospect of, you know, balancing time, balancing sources between primary and secondary, you know, what is the, because you are in a sense, you're a, a, a filter between history and between information and, and your students. Mm -hmm. That's a great question. Um, I, <laughs> there are far more educated and, and trained historian professionals than I am, but I'll, I'll, I'll put this, um, at least in government, because that's, that's where my primary field is, at least in government, the key is to highlight the major aspects of our government, get those out and about. It's kind of like filling the, uh, the, the jar, right? You want to fill it with our big rocks and then you can fill it in with the sand, right? That, that kind of idea. I want to get the big things out. Separation of powers, federalism, checks and balances, the courts, judicial review, that kind of big stuff, right? But then you, you take the small moments that you have and you say, okay, let's examine this small little thing called Rule 22 of the Senate, right? That's not something big that's, that's in our textbooks. That's something I add because uh, Rule 22, which in, includes the filibuster and, and, and the cloture motion, that explains so much of the 20th century Senate politics, which is important for students to know. Well, and depending on how the election comes out, Rule 22 might be the key to our system of government. <laughs> it, it very well could be. And, as, and when it comes to tertiary versus secondary versus primary sources, it, it comes down to um, one, reading level. What, what can my students digest? Two, has my, can I trust that my textbook and myself that I can relay the ideas well enough? So I just actually had my kids read a selection of Citizens United VFEC. Um, just the other day. I didn't have him read the whole thing because God, who the hell want to, wants to, okay? I had them read sections of it, primarily Kennedy's main argument about uh, that there should not be a distinction between corporate versus non-corporate identity, a little bit of Scalia's dissent, uh, excuse me, his concurring opinion, and then, um, who is it, Stevens dissent, right? And then what we do is we, we discuss it. And I do my best to present both sides, 
But at the school I'm at, we have a deliberate idea of promoting liberty. So anything that promotes liberty, we give a nice thumbs up to. At the same time, because I want my students to think, I also say, Stevens isn't wrong about what he's saying. It's just a matter of whether or not that's relevant. So you, you do have to give your students the benefit, of the, the benefit of the doubt that they are thinking creatures that want to take their ideas on for themselves. The most that you can do is just give them something. What you give them is important, which is why I, no one person should be in charge of that. We have an excellent um, academic advisor committee for our board of directors. They go through curriculum and they say, does this com uh, comport with our mission? And if it does, then awesome. Does that mean that our curriculum has a lens? Yes. That's why it matters what lens you choose. See, you're admitting though that you have a lens and that's what I like because then parents can actively send their kids to your school knowing that's the lens put on history for their children. And I think my favorite thing that you said is that you take the kids to the source. Yeah. And it's good that you guide them through it, but you also let them see that original source for their own eyes and use their own brains <laughs> and the type of thinking you, you help teach them and hopefully their parents are helping them learn to evaluate it. And I think we would have so much better history if we would teach kids what your teacher or the news or this politician or whoever says they're not God. Um, they may act like they are, but they're not. Like, look for yourself look to the original sources and think about them. Uh, right. I love that you do that. Yay. And, you know, I teach Austrian economics. When people come <laughs> saying, why, why aren't we learning this? Because I'm like, because we think they're wrong. If you want to learn them, go find the, go find teachers do it. We don't teach that stuff. And, and, and this is the thing, right? Today's episode is all about why certain lenses are, are bad for liberty, but it all, it assumes that you think liberty is good. If you think liberty is overrated, this episode's not going to make any damn sense to you. We are assuming that you want liberty, and we're here to say, okay, if that's true, here's what to choose, and here's what's to avoid, right? We are already assuming you are with us. Now, other, ep other episodes, are we're going to convince you why liberty is good. This is not the episode. We are assuming <laughs> liberty is awesome in this episode. <laughs> Well, and so, so thank you, Stanton. I think, like I said, I think you have a really important perspective here and I didn't, I didn't want to gloss over that, uh, that topic or that question. Um, and it leads me perfectly into to what I want to talk about with Cato because of course uh, it wouldn't be an episode of Self-Evident and Forgotten unless Cody started musing about the Roman Republic. Um, but the reason why I really want to talk about Cato and Caesar is what you're talking about, Stanton, is exactly what happened, and it affected all of the secondary sources around scholarship on the fall of the Roman Republic. So what you have is you have early scholarship around the fall of the Roman Republic, and a lot of times people that follow, so I was, I was a classic student. Most of my professors were trained in the British system. The British system took most of its leanings from the German system because the Germans were the initial archaeologists. Uh, they were the initial discoverers of the primary sources in, in a lot of these contexts. And I, I mean, German is still the first language of archaeology. It's slowly switching into French as you get into other classics and, and, and antiquities, but German is still the language of archaeology. Um, and so what you have is in a lot of this early scholarship, and, and if you've read old books about the Roman, and even still modern books about the Roman Republic, a lot of them hold Caesar up as this like perfect 
idealistic individual who's there to save Rome and he's, you know, he's there to create the perfect system and he's getting rid of this, this pesky Senate that's standing in the way of the, the good of the people and the people, all they want to do is they just, they just want some free bread. They just want to live in the city and they just want to go about their lives. Like what's so bad about that? <laughs> who, who could hate that? And and then you see the scholarship. So first of all, you see a, a huge lack of scholarship on Cato. And Cato, of course, is the kind of libertarian paragon in, uh, in the Roman Republic, the, the man who's stuck so strongly to his, his values and principles that, um, you know, he willingly left the city on multiple occasions when he knew it was bad for him and bad for Rome because he couldn't possibly shirk his duty to the Republic. But you see this lack of scholarship on Cato and the scholarship that you do see just is just lambasts him. It just, he's this crazy guy that walks around with no shoes. He refuses to partake in events because it's not, you know, it's not appropriate for a Roman to be drunk in certain occasions. So what you see and why I think it's really relevant as we're talking about the lenses of history is you see this entire scholarship about the Roman Republic that is skewed towards loving Caesar and hating Cato. And the, the reason why you have this and where it comes from is there, this scholarship is all developed by German Marxists. <laughs> you, so you've got this school of thought where they love this idea of, you know, unitary control, a strong government, grain doles, um, you know, giving land to the, the, you know, the soldiers that fought in certain wars. These are all ideas that they love. I mean, they're, they're trained in the German academic system and then they're also archeologists. It's, it's unavoidable, but it was so ingrained in them that you had hundreds of years of scholarship that all just toe this line. And you, it took people going back to primary sources and really sitting down with them with a different lens without being stuck with that, um, you know, initial German bureaucratic love lens that the, the early archaeologists and early historians had and starting to unravel the actual stories. And in Rome, it's a really big problem or it's a, it's a tough problem because there's not a whole ton of it, primary sources available. I mean, we don't have any actual writings of Cato the Younger. So there was a big problem there and it just shows you how such a simple thing that you wouldn't even think about goes to affect scholarship for hundreds of years. And I mean, still to this day, there's plenty of books out there that do not enjoy Cato and love Caesar, not because they actually like Caesar's policies and don't like Cato's policies, but because they were just drawing from the old scholarship. That's really, that's actually quite amusing. I'm currently directing, as, as you guys, I'm currently directing a, a high school rendition of Julius Caesar by, by, by Shakespeare. Um, what fascinates me is how Shakespeare had a better, had a more accurate understanding of the events than modern scholars did. It's, you know, it's, it's a play, it's, it's a tragedy and drama and so on and so forth. But he portrays Brutus as a noble man trying to protect against tyranny and against abuse of power by Caesar. And then they also show how Caesar was a great and mighty man of Rome. So, you know, he's doing, you know, he's, he's got to appease to his English, uh, English overlords and, 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 and rulers. While at the same time, he recognizes that Caesar was a tyrant, guys. Does anyone want to remember that? Anyone want to remember that? He crossed the Rubicon, right? So, oh. <laughs> 
<laughs> the fact that that I did not know that about why because I've I've wondered that why is Caesar held up as this paragon of of awesomeness? <laughs> Caesar's utter garbage. I mean, there's there's almost nothing good there. Uh, I mean, he was he was a decent military general in some contexts, but even then, not really. I guess you could give him a lot of credit for uh, Debello Gallico is one of the best uh, military works that's ever been written, especially in Latin. And um, because it was written as propaganda, because Caesar was a tyrant, um, it, he just happened to like knock out a pretty great work in Latin. And as a result, it gave us a lot of information about campaigning, day-to-day information. It's also a really uh, good work to translate in Latin for for younger folks practicing the language. But yeah, he's he's garbage. Like on multiple occasions, he cited, so you have multiple triumvirates. He's siding with people to try and like get rid of the Roman Senate because the Senate keeps quashing things. He keeps getting mad that the they, the people that they stand up for consul like win so that they don't have complete and utter control of the of the Roman government. So he gets mad because one of them will win and then a conservative consul will win. And then they just go into the public forum and just lambast him nonstop and try and get him to like get be killed by the Roman populace. They use their thugs repeatedly to try and force measures through like Caesar's garbage. Like he's not good. He's not a good person. And none of the like, oh, they're doing this for the grain dole. They're doing this to help the No, no, (laughs) not even close. Like Caesar's pissed at the age of 40 that he, there's a remark where he gets mad that Alexander the Great by 32 had conquered the known world and he's 40 and he hasn't even had a military triumph yet. He doesn't care about the people. Like he just wants to be first and foremost in Roman society. But so you get this like crazy lens. People love Caesar. Every, like I know plenty of libertarians that aren't very, you know, well-versed in, in Roman history that love Caesar. All right. So... We've had bad lenses since who knows how the hell long, right? It, whether, whether or not Caesar, whether or not Antony and his triumvirate rewrote the history of Caesar immediately off the bat to quash Brutus and his co-conspirators, or it was German Marxists making classicism something horrific. Whatever. Damn German bureaucratic progressives. <laughs> oh, the romantic Germans. Always, always, always in the way. Christy, help me out here. Please tell me that in 2019 and 2020 and 2021, we have learned our lesson. Well, you know, not to dash your hopes or anything, but I think the answer is definitely no. Darn. (laughs) Why not? We often repeats the same mistakes. We don't learn from history. We repeat it. But (laughs) I think think we're all very aware, as probably our listeners are too, of the 1619 Project released in 2019 and debated quite a bit since then. And I think it's one of the, certainly not the only example, but it's one of the most, I guess, obvious examples of revisionist history and revisionism coming down and saying, oh, what you thought America stood for, what you thought American history was, what you thought the constitution was, what you thought the founders were, literally everything you ever thought was true about America was actually, in fact, not true. And the problem is the people who wrote it most certainly had an agenda <laughs> that came out 
and was uncovered after they released it. They weren't upfront about it at all. And then, but they had to admit it because even other historians started poking holes in the 1619 project and in all the supposed history put out in it. And other historians were like, well, we might even agree that racism needs to be discussed in America and that slavery was a bigger issue than, you know, some other historical documents might indicate. But we, we agree with you on that, but you still can't claim all of this stuff as real history. And so I was actually reading a really interesting article today where the author uh, of the majority of the 1619 Project, the lady that compiled it all together um, at the behest of the New York Times media writing history, that's always a great, great idea. Um, she was, you know, kind of backtracking and saying, well, if these historians had approached me differently, instead of putting out a letter saying what was wrong, if they had had a personal conversation with me, I would have listened to them more. She literally said that. And then, and she also said, here's, here's, I'm going to read a little bit from the article. It says her last name is Hannah Jones. Hannah Jones hasn't budged from her conviction that slavery helped fuel the revolution. I do still back up that claim, she told me. But then she admits that she phrased it too strongly in her essay in a way that might mislead readers into thinking that support for slavery was universal. And she was like, I accept that criticism. So it's like, we don't do that with history, put something out there with a big agenda, completely revise everything, tell people everything they've ever believed is false, and then walk it back little by little as the holes get poked. And as real historians say, you know what, you might have a point to some of your theories and ideas, but you can't just make up history because it fits your worldview paradigm. So I could continue, but I'm sure you guys can too. So you guys jump in. What do you think? No, I, I think you're absolutely right. And here's what baffles me about the 1619 Project. And again, for those, for those of you who briefly don't know it, the 1619 Project, the New York Times major thing was, listen, America didn't start in 1776. It started in 1619 when the first slaves landed on the new continent. Okay. And that the whole idea of American Americana, that the revolution, all that was primarily slave focused. Okay. That's, that's the gist. Okay. As compared to, you know, the standard model, the Orthodox, if you want to call it, which is now America is founded on this idea of personal liberty and avoiding taxation and unrepresentation in the British government. So that's, that's the main conflict, right? Here's what baffles me about that whole thing. School districts across the country started to adopt the New York Times because what they did is they created this curriculum based yeah. on the 1619 Project, the history curriculum. And school districts everywhere started to adopt it like, like without any sort of like – now, who wrote this? A professional historian <laughs> or someone else? Not to say that people can't dabble in history. I'm not. I'm, I'm certainly not a historian myself by any stretch of the means. I have far more, far better colleagues here at the school. But for God's sake, you wouldn't want me to write a a a a history book for you without proper credentials. And not not saying credentials have to come from a university or a piece of paper. But for God's sake, it should be more than the New York Times. And it should or that it was designed for popular consumption. It should be something of an intellectual rigor, which is not the New York Times, which is written for eighth grade reading levels for crying out loud. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I don't, I, I don't, Stan's on a roll. I don't even know if I want to jump in here. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't, I do not want to dominate the time here, but 
freaking Lord Almighty. You do not just adopt something because it's in vogue. Okay. That's, that's not good academia. It's not good education, but hell, what do I know? Education in America hasn't been quality for most of it anyway. But this is just, this is a repeat, right? This is why, why when we were talking about this and we were just kind of going back and forth and the 1619 project came up, this is why I wanted to talk about Rome. I mean, I always want to talk about Rome. Um, <laughs> Any excuse is good for you. <laughs> oh yeah, it doesn't take much. <laughs> no. <laughs> My friends hate me, it's okay. Um, <laughs> but this is, so exactly that, right? I mean, here the source is much less credible. Don't get me wrong. I mean, obviously the author is, is not a uh, credentialed historian and I don't even necessarily care about credentials. I mean, um, Dan Carlin's hardcore history. I don't think he has, you know, a lot of formal training, but he relays a lot of really good information. Credentials isn't from a piece of paper. Credentials is from a process, from a methodology. Right. The methodology can come to different conclusions, but the methodology is what gives you credentials. Her methodology was crap. Well, so I, I technically think that, is it true that the first slaves arrived at where the colonies would later be in 1619? That's, somewhat historically supported correct i think i think that i mean that might be where i like literally end the <laughs> right <laughs> historically no, I, I, I was reading a book about um about piracy in in north america and i vaguely remember reading that uh, a dutch pirate brought slaves from the west indies to what would then be could later become the colonies in 1619 so i think that might be accurate I do think it'd be interesting to note that, like I said, I'm pretty sure it was like a Dutch pirate bringing slaves from the islands to, but so, you know, a little different there, but um, I, you, so you have this source and I'm using air quotes uh, and people adopt this source with air quotes and it gets disseminated and it becomes a form of scholarship in and of itself. And that's what's so scary is Stan, what you did at the beginning of this episode is you identified your biases. You identified your lens. This is what Christy's talking about. You said, hey, look, we think liberty is good. We're going to talk about things that show and promote liberty. If things that, if there are, are subjects or perspectives that don't promote liberty, we might present those, but we're going to present them as bad. So then you've, you've identified your source. That's what the German uh, historians and archaeologists didn't do. That's what the author of the 1619 Project didn't do. They presented these things as fact. And then in a little bit of the culpability here should be on the people too. People didn't dig deeper into it. It's a little bit harder when you're talking about, you know, PhD archaeologists interpreting, you know, uh, primary source material. People should have jumped into it a little bit more heavily here in 2020 when you got, you know, the ability to search anything at your fingertips, but people are lazy. So that's okay. It's, it's important to know, I want to qualify this and Chris, I'll let you go here. I want to no, qualify no. something. I know we're talking about lenses and no, there's personal biases and, 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 but I do want to highlight something. This isn't just a, my view, your view. Uh, so it's not just subjective. It's not just, uh, well, this is what I want to want to interpret. Out of history. This is what you want to interpret. Out of let's just, let's agree to disagree. <laughs> it's more, that's not what we're trying to get at. What we're trying to get at is, there are better ways to do history and there are worse ways to do history. I don't, not, I don't know what the right 
way to do history is. I don't think anyone does. Anyone who says it is, you should not listen to them. But when you take the entire weight of, of historical evidence and you compare it to all other sources of evidence, certain conclusions become just self, <laughs> self-evident, right? They become <laughs> obvious okay? that the founding fathers were primarily motivated by liberty, not slavery, is not just apparent in the, in the words that they wrote in the Constitution of the Declaration. It becomes evident in their personal journals and their personal diaries, okay? It comes from uh, newspapers and it comes from personal recordings by regular citizens, not even the founding father titans. It comes from regular people. And, that's, and this isn't just about the revolution, just about the founding of the party. It's about everything. Certain things become more or less clear when you have more evidence, no matter what lens you're using. The only way you can ignore that ed- evidence is if you instead put on blinders instead of lenses, instead of glasses. Okay, so I want to be clear. I'm not saying there's a right way to do history, but there are better ways to do history. It is not totally up to your subjective bias. The purpose of recognizing bias is so that you can then account for it to understand what history actually is. And there are wrong ways of doing history, and that's called the 1619 Project. Yes. <laughs> that is a bad, bad way because it's a bad lens, bad way because it's bad methodology. <laughs> well, and, and, point, like Stanton, the, the founders were prolific writers. It's not as if we have to guess as to what they thought or what their motivations were in the revolution. So for the 1619 Project to come in and say, oh, everyone knew politically correct information, and that is the problem, is that this is an attempt to make history politically correct. And, and then they say, well, we don't really care what the founders claimed or what they said or even what, how many of them lived their personal lives we're just going to tell you that actually it was slavery that they really cared about and they really wanted to rebel against Britain because they wanted to establish America as a slaveholding colony. And that's honestly insane proposition if you read the founders' actual words. And, and so to both of your points, when primary sources actually exist, which they don't for a lot of history, but when they do, we most certainly shouldn't just toss them out the window because today's political environment makes it's more popular to prefer a different um, type of history because it doesn't preclude us from discussing racism or discussing the interaction of blacks and whites and how America should conduct ourselves today in light of realizations people may have made. You don't have to rewrite history to handle racism correctly today. And I think that's a big, a big factor here. I mean, because what we're talking about is you can't, I think, Stanton, you, you hit on something. You talked about lenses versus blinders. Um, and, and I think that's a, a big point because you can't just ignore facts. The problem is there's this movement now where today where, you know, facts are subjective, Blech. where even if you've got something from multiple sources that is, is fairly well established, and look, nothing's ever going to be perfect. Um, you know, maybe in the future our... 2020. Oh man, could you imagine learning 2020 and about 2020 and <laughs> 30 years? But uh, you know, now information is so prevalent and so well preserved that maybe it'll maybe it'll be different in the future. But look, when you've got multiple perspectives conser- confirming something, you can't then just go in and, and Chrissy, this is what you're talking about. You can't just go in and say, "Well, but I don't like the people that are telling that story, so I'm going to change the story." 
And that is true in some contexts. I mean, you can take into account that we don't have a lot of stories from slaves during the Roman Republic. Mm-hmm. There's not a whole ton of those. And the slaves that we do have stories about are generally like Greek educators that are very well treated. I mean, they're, they're tutors. They're not slaves like we would think in the common parlance today. Um, so is there a hole in our understanding of what it would have liked to have been a slave during the Roman Republic? Yes, absolutely. But that doesn't mean you can completely reject the facts about, you know, Cato caring more about individual liberty and the the Republic and instead side with Caesar because he wanted to give out free things. I mean, those are, those are factually ascertainable they're confirmable from multiple sources and you can't just decide, Oh, well, this is history is different. Cato was a bad guy. Like Cato didn't actually care about these things because he didn't wear shoes and liked to be dirty. (laughs) Like, I, you know what I mean? Like, so you can't just put blinders on because you don't like where the facts lead you. Yeah. It, it, and, and for whatever reason it is, acceptable to do that in history but not in empirical science and the and the methods of empiricism in history are vastly different but the principle should be the same what you should take the evidence as you get it and try to understand it as best you can so the whole exi- the whole notion of blinders in history utterly baffles me and the only way i can understand it is that the there's this particular philosophy this particular type of way of looking at the world, not just history, but the world that leads us to this blinding effect. Okay. Now, whatever, if you want to call it progressivism or Marxism or leftism or whatever you want to call it, pick, pick your favorite ism. And it's this idea that this philosophy that we're dealing with greatly dislikes personal autonomy and freedom. Right. And I, and we were talking about this the other day. Um, we we had this conversation in our personal chat of, oh, do you, are you guys conspiracy theorists? Right? No, we had we had this little <laughs> brief conversation. Do you think there's some Illuminati conspiracy here or there? Um, you know, I don't know about YouTube, but I, I I don't I am not convinced that there's some massive conspiracy by liberty haters to undermine the principles and ideals of the founding. I don't think there's I don't think there's that kind of Illuminati effect, but. And, I, and I, I, I'm inclined to think that you might agree with me, but we'll see. I think that there are those uh, across the world, especially in this country, who are in positions of elite academia, high levels of government, the media, even business, ironically, that have become convinced and mostly independent of each other. They've become convinced apart from one another of a damaging historical revisionism, of a, of a harmful... Uh, ideology and philosophy that is is destructive to the libertarian scheme of the founding fathers. They've they've been duped, fooled into supporting and funding and disseminating these ideas to the mass public. Sixteen nineteen project is but one example, and their power puts these ideas into practice. Now, I don't think there's a central plan to do that, but it's just a group of uncoordinated morons, and those morons hurt us. Now, I don't know if that calls me a conspiracy theorist. I don't think it's conspiracy, but I certainly think it's a problem. <laughs> you're in a roll tonight. I you're am just, not. I am not <laughs> having it today. <laughs> you're fired up. 
I like this, Stanton. I do too. Great. <laughs> um, I think I mostly agree with you, except for I would probably push back on um, them coming to it, all of these different places and things in American society and even society around the, the world, coming to it mostly independent of one another. I think that's true in a sense, but I also think that it's very clear that you have a a strong progressive movement that starts in the United States at the end of the 1800s, moves into the early 1900s. I mean, it, it's objects in motion tend to stay in motion. And you have this establishment of a progressive system and the, the, the bedrock for continuing to fuel a bureaucratic system that begins with PhD schools like John Hopkins and, and, moves through uh, Woodrow Wilson as president. And, and you see this inevitable, I guess, takeover of educational institutions. I mean, it's, it's no surprise to anybody that a, a lot of colleges aren't willing to present um, conservative or libertarian ideas. I mean, being a libertarian that went through college in Canada and then did law school in California. Um, oh, wow. It, yeah, I know, right? It's ma- it's a miracle I made it out of life. Uh, it's because I was just spent all my time talking about Rome. <laughs> uh, you, it's it's a shame because you know I don't I wouldn't want anyone to be forced to be um, to agree with me on on topics, but the vitriol that you get just by having the difference of opinion is what's concerning, and it's because there's this entrenched viewpoint about education that is in educational institutions. There's an entrenched viewpoint about expertise and leadership and bureaucracy that exists in educational institutions. And when you're talking about things like uh, well-established media, when you're talking about things like a lot of, of CEOs and, and corporations, a lot of the people that are expressing these viewpoints and that are pushing the, um, you know. They share the same circles. Yeah. And they come from the same places. So, I mean, look, did two individual, did one individual in, you know, a bureaucratic institution in France and a CEO in Silicon Valley sit down together and decide that they're going to? Do they wear their their robes (laughs) and have candles and say, now we shall discuss the grand plan? No, no, no. You can't mention the robes and the candles. Now we're definitely getting kicked (laughs) off of all of the (laughs) streaming platforms. Uh, but look, did they sit down together? No, but they came from the same place. They came from the same understanding of, of institutions and the same idea of central planning of government and the same idea. And look, this is what it all really relates to is that the progressive movement believes that human beings are inherently changeable and that we can just decide to be different one day and that people can be planned for differently one day. And the whole basis of the classical school of thought and of classical liberalism is that people are inherently the same. And if we learn what the Romans did and understand why they did it that way, then we might learn something about ourselves. But if you reject that idea, uh, if you reject the idea that we're human beings and we're substantially similar and there are natural laws, then you can write the 1619 project because you can make it say whatever you want it to say. Well, and part of the problem is the coordination between these people or these groups, while this doesn't apply to every single one of them, I mean, many of them by today were raised in the same educational system. And 
they were taught from the same theories. They were taught by the same philosophies. And that's why I believe in a ton of educational options for parents who don't want their children raised in the system that in many ways pumps kids out to believe and fight for these one like ideals. I mean, you want to talk about indoctrination. <laughs> I, I unfortunately think that's what the education system has done to so many kids who now are today's leaders because to your point, Cody, some of this stuff has gone on since the 1800s. It's not like the last 10 years we're talking about. And I mean, for my part, I'm definitely not a conspiracy theorist. My grandma is like the queen of all conspiracy theorists, <laughs> like for real, she loves them. I'm but coming to your house for Thanksgiving. <laughs> yeah, oh man, I, I don't personally love them. I mean, they're interesting, but, um, but I believe that there's like an eternal struggle between good and evil, always. And there are always there is an agenda on both, on both sides. There's an agenda for good and there's an agenda for evil. And I'm not specifically calling anyone out right now in this episode as, as evil. What I'm saying is there's, I think there's forces at play that we don't always see and that we don't always know are, in my view, coordinating things behind the scenes. And people are working for sometimes a side they don't realize they're working for. So I'm not trying to, you know, ascribe certain motives to people who think they're doing things for good reasons. But I think humans can be very misled and very deceived and think that we are fighting for something that will change society and will be great. But actually we're on the side of something that's very wrong and may even have its roots in something that's evil or dangerous or put whatever word on that you want to. Um, so I, I think there's a lot more at play than, than meets the eye, even if it's not full on like conspiracy theories, always at work. Uh, my, my one last thought I wanted to say that I have a problem with a lot of the current like historical revisionism is that it completely eliminates the idea for grace in human beings. And what I mean by that is a lot of people have been pulled literally out of the history books or their statues have been toppled or, or they've been canceled for lack of a better word because they did something wrong because their lives were not perfect because they committed whatever has been defined as like the sin of this age and and therefore they are given no grace and i think when we really look at what that means that we are saying about human beings if you cross this line if you do this thing you are no longer worthy of even having your name spoken like we'll never speak of you yeah, yes thank you you're irredeemable and i guess that bothers me a lot um obviously i'm i'm a christian so it bothers me on a spiritual level but it also just bothers me on a human level why would we judge another person as literally irredeemable because they did this thing and say their story is no longer worth telling let's admit where they were wrong let's talk about what they did that was that was a sin or evil or whatever word you want to put on it but let's not cast them out of all discussions i think that's horrible to do to humanity who lives today who will one day be viewed by future generations and do we want that standard applied to us if we're not perfect by the standard of that age we have no grace we're irredeemable we're lost forever uh, i don't like it i i you, i that's that's a perfect way to, to say that and thomas i think thomas jefferson is the one that gets the hit on the most on that because mm. i despise jefferson <laughs> as a human being i despise jefferson as a politico i think he was a mediocre president i think he was a terrible politician and he was a backstabbing friend to John Adams. Not that John Adams was perfect, but you know. 
and I and no, I, I generally dislike the man. Oh, and yeah, he owns slaves. Big problem. And yet, I have yet to find a founding father I agree with their ideas more than Thomas Jefferson's, with the exception of maybe Patrick Henry. <laughs> Say, have you met Patrick Henry? <laughs> maybe the exception of Patrick Henry. There's someone I agree with Jefferson on almost all those accounts. And I've said this before on this show. A person is a hypocrite because they probably said something true and then just didn't do that, right? That's probably what makes them the hypocrite, that they were right. They just didn't practice their righteous sayings. Right. And so that's, I, I really appreciate you saying that, Christy. Uh, well, and there's a big thing there, Christy. I mean, right, like we, we draw this arbitrary line on who we get to, not we, never mind. I'm not loving myself in with that. Um, <laughs> just saw that quote coming out. Um, there's this arbitrary line on who gets canceled. Uh, you know, if you're tangential to slavery, you're canceled, right? Well, let's think about some popular things in, in, in pop culture media. I don't know, like pirates, pirates are really popular, right? I mean, there's yeah. a bunch of movies about it. There's a riot at Disneyland. Okay. We have to cancel pirates now. Uh, they were almost all engaged in, in the slave trade. And if they weren't engaged in the slave trade, they were absolutely complicit in the slave trade. So we need to, that's gone. Um, Vikings, Vikings are really popular. They definitely enslaved individuals. So, or if they didn't, then they were complicit in it. So Vikings are gone. Um, uh, what's the TV show about the Royal family, the, the crown, the crown. Yes. Oh, crown's gone. Okay. Royal family was actively engaged in the slave trade dating back to uh, forever. I don't, so, know if Elizabeth, I don't know if Elizabeth Windsor has been involved in that, but, but I get your point. She's get complicit. Your point. That's her, her, get her. I'm sorry, Stanton. Her wealth is derived from her ancestors who were slavers and complicit in the slave you trade. You know what? I, I, how, how shameful of me. I, I would like to issue a public apology and I was not sensitive <laughs> enough. I'm sorry. So there's – apology accepted. Uh, no, you, you're, you're doing it wrong. You never accept the apology. You're oh, never no. supposed to accept I'm supposed the to be able to just, yeah, reject just that let you me, – Just let me rot in my self-loathing. That, that's how this works. Yeah. So I'm being a little flippant about this. I, I get that the people that are – a lot of people that are concerned with um, or, or more deeply involved in these cancellation movements um, – have a lot of a lot of strong reasoning for doing so, or at least they believe they have strong reasoning for doing so. But to me, it's just it's so arbitrary. I, I don't understand where we're drawing the lines and why we're drawing the lines. Like you're going to start tearing down monuments of George Washington, who is the one of the the few reasons that we have a nation that ex respects individual liberty and the nation and we talked about this in another episode that was the quickest from inception to getting rid of slavery in the world. George Washington was, was one of the primary reasons we have that. And now you're going to change a school that's named after him. I mean, it's insane. So the idea that there's this, some arbitrary line that someone on Twitter gets to draw and then magically we're tearing down statues is, is a problem. And it's exactly that it's arbitrary. There's no real, um, honest viewpoint behind it because if there was a real and honest viewpoint behind it we'd be having a lot of other conversations that we're not having mm -hmm. it just so happens that we have to we're having the conversation about the foundation of our system of government which strangely aligns with some other end goals and agendas of some other movements strangely oddly <laughs> well and it shows how honestly it, exactly that you're right cody because if it weren't arbitrary, 
they wouldn't be able to say, oh, hey, you're a white man, like, oh, both of you, you're, you now have no right to speak because you're the most privileged people in all of society. And literally, the only thing they judge you based on are two characteristics you cannot control. You did not, I'm pretty sure you didn't choose to be born male or white, and yet you are. And so therefore, arbitrarily, on these basis of things that you can't help and you can't change and you can't go control, and you can even really, according to them, couldn't even really choose to change that identity. You can change a whole lot of other identities, but not that one. Um, I mean, that is the height of arbitrary decision-making to not evaluate you at, or my husband or my son or my father, who are all white men, as a human being with the liberty and the freedom to make your own decisions and the personal responsibility to be held accountable for what you do and you decide, but not on something you cannot help. I mean, that, that is the height of arbitrariness, in my opinion. I think as this get, is the definitely the episode that gets us all canceled, by the way. Oh, yeah, 100%. It's but been a no, good run. It's not, it's it's not this episode. It's the episode where we talk about that idea for a full hour. <laughs> oh. I want to wrap this up real quick. Um, it's probably for the best. I know, yeah. right? <laughs> we often, we often um, uh, at the end of the shows, ask, okay, so we have this problem. How do we fix it? Okay, we, we try to do things. I think this is one of the few where the only real solution is there has to be competition against the current mainstream institutions that educate people. That, that is, I, I can think of literally nothing else, whether it's charter schools, homeschool, and no, char not all charter schools are, are like liberty, where we, we value liberty. Some charter schools are like way off their knockers. But um, <laughs> you've got to have, you've got to challenge the government monopoly of education, You've got to challenge the oligopoly of media in terms of the progressive aspects. And you need to start getting people like more people like Elon Musk who say, capitalism's awesome, guys. Bill Gates, what are you raving on about? Your billions are made off of, your, off of this. You've helped countless of individuals. Bill Gates has done more to help people through his business than his charitable contributions, right? And so- we need more people like that. That's, that's all you can have is just a constant mounting of a challenge against these groups. Yes. Nothing else not will do. Silence, like refuse to let them silence you. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think, I think some of that is not even just the entrenched education, but it's self-education. I mean, I, I learned a lot more about our founding era, our founding history. Um, I, I even really redoubled my studies of the Roman Republic after I got out of law school. I mean, it's out there, it's available. Go and, and find sources that are either less biased or are willing to present the primary sources or go read the primary sources first and then read interpretations of them. We have so much information available to us. I mean, you can sit down at your computer and you can read hundreds of years worth of history, you can pick the area that you are most interested in and learn about the foundational principles of mankind and womankind in that period. And that's going to apply to today and to every other period. I mean, if you love the Roman Republic, like I do, I, I have lots of suggestions for you. <laughs> if you like the Roman empire, there's, plenty out there that's going to present the primary sources and then is going to evaluate that from a perspective of, of human nature. I mean, 
Egypt, Ottoman Empire, Byzantine, I pick, pick, you know, Chinese history, Far East, Japanese history. Pick, take your, take your pick, find what you like, sit down, learn about it. And then learn, you'll learn about human nature through that. And what you'll find is, and, and maybe this is my lens, you know, it's always better when humans are more free. It is just fundamentally better for our being, for our advancement, for our education, for our prosperity, when more people are more free. Christy, any final thoughts? No, I mean, I 100% agree. Like, we are created to be free. Like, we must be free. <laughs> well, I love that. I couldn't say it better. Yeah. And I love how you, how you phrased it, Cody. Um, the best way to mount this challenge against these bad lenses is to do it yourself. A free people must be self-reliant. Um, so, ladies and gentlemen, if I've done everything correctly, this episode will have released and dropped on Thanksgiving Day. So, we hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving, whether you were with yourself or with family. Um, we hope you are doing your best to stay safe. Um, and hopefully, if you decide to broadcast this episode to your entire household eating dinner, that we will provide enough conflict, enough controversy for you so that you don't have to fight with your crazy uncle or your wild aunt or your dumb cousin. We hope we've done it all for you. We don't know what we're going to be talking about next time. We know that's going to be self-evident and it's likely going to be forgotten. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at SEF underscore pod, as well as Facebook. And you can listen to us on most streaming uh, services, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we'll see you next time.